You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for the privilege we have to open your word, (coughs) to study together. I pray, Lord, that as we do so, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, and that as we spend these next few moments as we turn our minds heavenward, touch our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The sermon title this morning is, Where Do I Come From? Where do I come from? It's a question we ask each other all the time. Hey, where are you from? It's part of introductions. In my introduction today, Elder Ringstaff said, Pastor Ramsden's our speaker, and he comes to us from. It's standard. As we introduce each other, as we introduce ourselves, to often say your name and where you're from. What city you're from, what state you're from, or even what country you're from. I often get asked, where you from? Especially, obviously, when you're overseas. And it's... It's always interesting to answer the question, because what do they want to know? Do they want to know where you live? Do they want to know your ethnic heritage? Do they want to know what church you go to? And you kind of give different answers and you, and you kind of figure out what they want. When I lived here in America, sometimes people would try and be smart and guess where I'm from. And I'd be talking to them, they go, oh, I'm trying to feel good about themselves. Oh, is that an Australian accent I, I hear? I learned from Pastor John Bradshaw, who's going to be speaking later on, a really good way to answer that. And I'd look back at them and I'd be like, and it didn't go too well when I was in the back hills of Kentucky. But I'd look back at them and I'd be like, you Canadians always get us mixed up. <laughs> didn't go too well in Kentucky. Anyway. Are you from Australia? No, 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 not from Australia. And I say, I'm from England. But this was what often would happen. Because in some people's minds, if you're from England, how do I say this politically correct? You should be white, if you know what I mean. So they're like, I'm from England. And they'd look at me and they'd be like, but... And you know what they want to say, but they can't actually say it. So they'd look back at you and be like, but... Where are you really from? And I knew what they were asking, but I didn't want to help them out. So I'd be like, oh, I was born in Oxford, England. Are you asking where my parents are from? Yes, yes, where your parents are from. My parents. You see the flags on the screen. Top right is where my mother's from. Top left is where my dad's from. No, top right is where my dad. Top left is my mom. One of the flags, the one with the stripes, is a country, a little island in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius. Small little island that's off the coast of Madagascar, and that's where my dad's from. The other flag is where my mother's from. You may know that one, maybe more familiar, and that is the country of Iceland. And so my mother's from Iceland, my dad's from Mauritius. It's a very weird or very unique or strange combination. There are not many of us in the world. According to my calculation with my historical research and my, uh, you know, all, all of the rest, there are only seven of us in the world, and five of them are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> and fascinatingly, there's another family 
who were also Adventists, same combination where the mother's Icelandic and the father's Mauritian, and they live in Australia, and they have two children, and the, other, and the son is a pastor as well. And so half Icelandic, and you say, how do you know that there's only seven of you in the world? Well, in Iceland, there's only 250,000 people, well, now 300,000. There's only a small population. If somebody marries a Mauritian, then you're going to know it. Word travels. So there's only seven of us in the world, Icelandic and Mauritian. And kind of knowing where you come from helps with your identity and who you are in the present day. Americans love to know where they, talk about where they come from. Amen. Like, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm American. Or, have you ever heard this one? Hey, where are you from? I'm Irish. You're like, which part of Ireland are you from? Boston. <laughs> you know, like, Americans love to talk about, I'm half this Irish, and I'm a little bit Scottish, and I'm a little bit German, and my grandmother was Norwegian. Like, Americans do really like to know their ancestry and, and where they come from. And it has boomed a multi-billion dollar industry today with Ancestry.com and 23andMe where people spit a bit of saliva in a tube and then you send off that tube and it comes back and it will tell you exactly what you are. And it's fascinating. And last Christmas, my family and I, all of us did this uh, DNA test where we all spit, spit saliva in a tube and we discovered where we come from. And for years, I'd always said what I just shared with you, that I'm half Icelandic and half Mauritian. And I was actually quite hesitant to do the DNA test because I was worried that I'd have a, a sneaky 10% of like Slovakian or, or a 5% of, of something else and there'd just be something else there. And my half Icelandic and half Mauritian, what I'd always told everyone I was, would not be true. And guess what? I put my saliva into the tube, sent it off and came back. And guess what? I was exactly... 50% Mauritian and exactly 50% Icelandic with nothing else there. Pretty amazing, eh? As mentioned, my wife is here. Those are our parents at our wedding in 2013. There's my parents on the right of the picture, I believe. There's my father and my mother and then my father-in-law, mother-in-law, and then the shortest one is my grandmother-in-law. And the picture was taken. She would have been 97, I think, or 96. And she's still kicking around now at 105. That's good genes. She studies her Sabbath school every day and keeps her going. And so that's the, my wife's side of the family. There's our extended like, uh, nuclear, oh, well, I'm not exactly sure. The, my wife's side of the family, there's herself and her sister and Jason Sliger uh, when he had some hair, and their children when they were a little bit younger. That's my wife's side of the family. And then, here's another picture, and there is my wife's mother's extended side of the family with the brothers and the sisters and the uh, in-laws and the children. So my wife's side of the family, on her, she did the DNA test, and from her father's side, there was a bit of German, actually some English as well. From her mother's side, it was Japanese, Japanese. There's my wife's mother, and then her three uncles, and then her grandmother sitting there. We took this picture at my, at the 100th birthday party of uh, 
her grandmother. And my wife's mom is called Joan, and one of her brothers is called Dean, and one of her other brothers is called Glenn, and one of the other brothers is called Mark. My wife is called Aiko, and her sister is called Midori, and her grandmother is called Midori, and her mother is called Joan, and her uncle is called Dean, and another one's called Glenn, and another one's called Mark. So you've got this layer of Japanese names, and you've got a layer of names as American as they come. And then you've got a layer of Japanese names. Our history shapes who we are. There's probably several factors to this, but one of the factors, and maybe this is broader than just this instance here, if you go back in history, in American history, you go back to World War II. In World War II, there was rumor that the Japanese were going to come and do something. At the end of 1941, the American government commissioned what's called the Munson Report, where they went over to the West Coast where all the Japanese were living, and they researched amongst the community to see if amongst the Japanese-American community there was likely to be any insurrection or anything like that. And the conclusion of the Munson Report was in November 1941 that there was no military necessity. There will be no armed uprising of Japanese. For the most part, the local Japanese are loyal to the United States. Their family life is disciplined and honorable. Their children are obedient and the girls virtuous. And the Nisei, in other words for Japanese, show a pathetic eagerness to be Americans. November 1941. And then on December the 7th, 1941, 350 planes from General Nagumu flew over and they bombed Pearl Harbor, the eight battleships that were there in the Pearl Harbor area, and 2,000, if I get my numbers correct, 2,403, I believe, Americans lost their lives on December the 7th. And public perception shifted rapidly. Rapidly. It's important to know our history because what we see has happening in our shared history, we know these things can happen again. By December the 15th, Congressman John Rankin said, let's get rid of them now. I'm for catching every Japanese in America, Alaska, Hawaii, and putting them in concentration camps. Damn them. Let's get rid of them now. Henry McLowan. McLemore said, I am for the immediate removal of every Japanese on the West Coast to a point deep in the interior. I don't mean a nice part of the interior either. Herd them up, pack them up, give them the inside room in the Badlands. Personally, I hate the Japanese, and that goes for all of them. Which then led Frank Roll Roosevelt in February the 19th, 1942, to hereby authorize and direct the Secretary of the War and Military Commanders to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine from which any or all persons may be excluded. When I was dating my wife or courting my wife, whatever terminology you use, she said to me, I want to take you sometime to the Japanese American Museum in Los Angeles because I want you to go there and look at the museum and understand who I am. I took these pictures on the trip that we went there. It was during those 48 hours 
that I witness unscrupulous vultures in the form of human beings taking advantage of bewildered housewives whose husbands had been rounded up by the FBI within 48 hours after Pearl Harbor, they were afforded pittances for their belongings. My wife's family used to own a house, a farm in Palo Alto. I don't need to tell you how much that would cost today. Go on. Sent to 10 internment camps in America. And one of the ironies of World War II is that while the Americans were liberating the concentration camps of Europe, they had camps with their own citizens here. It's important to understand your past to understand who you are today. So when my wife's grandparents, whose grandfather went to the camp, whose grandmother didn't, they, they kind of escaped, so to speak, and went to live in Colorado before they got rounded up, but they actually said in hindsight it probably would have been better to go in the camp, such was the level of animosity they experienced from general population. When they, when they got, after the World War, War II, they decided to go to Hawaii because Hawaii had 50% population was Japanese, and they felt there'd be less... Um, prejudice there, and they settled the family there. And it's interesting that when they had children, they gave them names of Dean, Glenn, Joan, and Mark. And even though the grandmother and grandfather were both born in America, they could speak some Japanese, but the kids didn't learn any Japanese because at that time, it was important to assimilate into it's knowing your past that you know kind of some of the reasons why you are who you are in the present. The big three questions in life are, where do I come from, where am I going, and, and why am I here? Knowing your family past and knowing what your shared history as a family is helps to explain some of the reasons as to who you are today. I know my family's past. I told you I'm half Mauritian, half Icelandic. And, and then you, the, the religious backgrounds of your family. My mother comes from a Lutheran. My, father, my grandfather was a Lutheran minister. My father was a Hindu family. And they met and they got converted and became SDA. And you know that history of your family and it helps to shape who you are as an individual today. You meet other people and say, well, I'm a fifth generation Adventist. That shapes who you are today when you can trace your family background and you can say that your great, great, great grandfather met Ellen White. Praise the Lord. My grandparents were founding members of this church or, or my father helped to build this academy or, or those experiences of your family, they help to shape who you are today. If you have a Bible, turn if you can to Genesis chapter 39. And in Genesis 39, we've got the story there of Joseph. And Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And Joseph, Daniel, I, I love these characters in the Bible for... They teach us so much about identity and they teach us so much about who we should be as individuals. Joseph was a young man. We don't know exactly, but historians or Bible scholars believe he was probably around the age of 17 or 18 when he was taken as a captive and he was taken there to Egypt. Israel to Egypt. And as he goes down there to Egypt, the Bible says in Genesis 39, around verse 1, that he was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the guard, uh, of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, of, brought him down hither. And the Bible says in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master of Egypt. And the Bible says that his master saw the Lord was with him, and he saw that whatever he did was prospering. And verse 4, he found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had put into his hand. Joseph, at the young age of 17 or 18, is put over, as a slave, the whole house of Potiphar. And as you read down through the chapter, we just kind of know the story of Joseph. Those of you who are familiar with the story, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and she says, come, lie with me. 
And Joseph says no. Now we know from tracing the, the chronology of Joseph's life that he was released from prison at the age of 30. We know he was in prison for two years, 28. So if he was taken as a captive at the age of 17 or 18, we know he's in Potiphar's house for about 10 years. Now where in that 10 years, Potiphar's wife looks at him and says, come lie with me, we don't know. But let's just say for argument's sake, it's in the middle. It could have been after a year. But let's just say it's in the middle. Then later on in verse 10, the Bible says, after he says, no, I can't do that because I can't sin against my Lord and my master, the Bible says in verse 10 that day by day, every single day, this same temptation of, of, of lust and whatever comes to Joseph every single day. Now let's just say for argument's sake, that's five years. For five years, even if it was a year, even if it's a week, but whatever length of time it is, for months, years, Joseph says, nope, not today, not today. And you know the story, eventually Potiphar's wife gets frustrated and she grabs him. And he wriggles out of his clothes and he escapes. She claims he tried to rape her. Potiphar doesn't believe his wife. We know we can conclude that because if he did believe that a slave had tried to assault his wife, he would have killed the slave. But the fact that he only puts him in prison, we assume, it's not explicitly stated, we assume that because he didn't try and kill him and he only put him in prison, we assume that Potiphar actually believed Joseph and was saving face by punishing him in some way. Joseph goes to prison and there in prison, we have the story of the baker and the butler. Joseph interprets the dreams, doesn't get released. And the baker or the butler, I forget which one it was, forgets about Joseph. And then when we come to chapter 41 and Pharaoh has a dream and he can't understand this dream, what happens? So, ah, there's a slave. And so they call Joseph out of the prison. As they call Joseph out of the prison, the Bible says that they call him out and where is it there? Verse 14, Pharaoh calls for Joseph, chapter 41, brings him hastily. The Bible says he changes his clothes, he comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've dreamed a dream and I hear that you can interpret it. And verse 16, Joseph says straight away, his first words that we have recorded in scripture, Pharaoh says, you can interpret my dream and his first words of Joseph are, it is not me, but it is God. It is God that will interpret the dream, not me. And Pharaoh gives him the dream and Joseph interprets the dream and says there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of plenty that will lead to seven years of famine. Find someone that can oversee the land during the seven years of plenty to save up for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, and this is fascinating because if you read chapter 41, it'll only take you five minutes. Pharaoh has only interacted with Joseph for about five to ten minutes and he looks at Joseph and he says, I don't know anyone as wise and as smart as you. There's no interview process, no resumes or, or whatever. You're the smartest man I know. I'm gonna put you over the whole kingdom. 30 years old, just released from prison, only been interacting with Pharaoh for five or 10 minutes and he says, you're the man who's gonna oversee the whole country. Fascinating. Joseph oversees the country. Seven years of plenty. And it's fascinating today, if you go to Google Maps and you zoom in on Egypt and you put terrain landscape, you'll see that just south of Cairo, there's a big green area of Egypt. 
And that big green area of Egypt has a little green line that goes to the River Nile. And that canal today, that green line that goes from the River Nile to that big green area of 180,000 acres, they call it today Joseph's Canal. Joseph didn't just feed the nation of Egypt during the seven years of plenty. He put an infrastructure, a waterwork system in place where you've got this massive 180,000 acres of land today that is still the breadbasket for the whole country. They still get fed from that green, arable land there. The legacy of Joseph. Joseph's brothers enjoy the seven years of plenty. And during the seven years of famine, they now need place to go. And the Bible account records that the brothers come back, come not back, they come to Egypt. And we've got all the interaction between Joseph and his brothers where he accuses them of being spies and all the, all, all the rest. Judah stays back and eventually he says, that there must be another brother. Have you got another brother? And they say, yeah, we've got Benjamin. And he says, bring Benjamin. He says, no, no, we can't bring Benjamin. He's our dad's favorite. And he says, if you don't bring Benjamin, no more food. And so the father lets Benjamin go. And Benjamin comes there, and that's when you pick it up in chapter 45. And, and, I, and I love chapter 45 because it, 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 chapter 44, they're coming there. And in chapter 45, at the very beginning of the chapter, or the end of chapter 44, rather, it says, listen, to chapter 45, verse 1, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all that stood by him, and he cries, cause every man to go out from me, and there stood no man with him, and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard, and Joseph said unto his brothers, I, powerful words, I what? Am Joseph. I've been here in Egypt. At this point of his life, he'd been there for almost 20, probably over 20 years. Now, after the seven years of plenty, from 30 to 37, he's in his late 30s. He's been there for 20 years or, or slightly longer. He hasn't spoken Hebrew as a, as a language for 20 years. He hasn't been called Joseph for 20 years. But now as he stands in front of his brothers, he's dressed differently to them. His hair is cut differently to them. He speaks a different language now in addition to the Hebrew. And he stands and looks at his brothers and he's weeping and he looks at them and he says, I am Joseph. That's who I am. I remember my past. I remember my heritage. I remember my family. I remember my father. I remember the promises to my father and my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers. I am Joseph. Three powerful words in scripture. He doesn't forget who he is. He doesn't forget his family heritage. He doesn't forget his background. I am Joseph. It's important for us today to remember what our background is as individuals. But on a broader corporate or church-wide level, it's important for us today to understand what our background is as a church. Amen? And this is Michigan. You don't need to hang around here too long to realize that Michigan Seventh-day Adventist members are proud of their heritage. First, and you can pick any one of ten things just to get started. First, conference formed in the Adventist church. Amen. First, camp meeting in the Adventist church. Right, Michigan. And the list goes on and on and on. And it's good. 
If you have a good part of your heritage and history, praise the Lord, share it with everyone. Know where you're from and know what your background is because it shapes your identity and who you are today. Joseph didn't forget who he was. I am Joseph. I am Joseph. That's who I am. It's interesting when you contrast with, with Esther. We don't have time to, to, to read necessarily, but in Esther chapter 2, it's interesting that when Esther goes into the king, she's told explicitly by her cousin Mordecai, don't tell anyone who you are. Keep it a secret. And I don't think that was part of some grand plan. She was taught to be ashamed of her identity. She was. Later on in the book, she redeems herself and her people because they talk to her and say, you're here for this time. Oh, maybe I am. And she goes into the king and reveals who she is and says, I am Esther and I am a Jew and I am of my people. And she rediscovers her identity. She becomes proud of her identity after initially being told to hide it. And there's a lesson for the two contrasts in some of us, the way we go about our school life or our work life or our family life. Some of us just try and be like an Esther where we just try and hide who we are. Forget our heritage and our past and our history. We have a powerful spiritual lineage as a Seventh-day Adventist church, amen? When we look at the Christian religion today, we look at the Christian faith, it's 2,000 years since New Testament times. Christianity has gone from being a Middle Eastern slash African religion when it started, to becoming a European religion, to becoming a worldwide religion. The church has gone from being persecuted to being an illegal church, to being a popular church, to being an institutional church, and you could argue today in America, it's becoming an indifferent church, where Christianity is increasingly mocked through the media channels. When we look at our shared history, we see turning points of history, and each one of these turning points helps to shape who we are. And we need to know our past because it helps give us identity in the present. Without knowing our past, we, we have less identity and therefore less purpose in the present. We look at the turning points of Christianity or Protestantism, translation of the Bible in the last 500 years was a key thing. That people died just to get the Bible in your hands. And we treat it sometimes so frivolously or so carelessly or so, uh, so much for granted. The protest of the princes, the breakaway Protestant groups that came as Christianity was breaking off, Lutheranism, Calvinism, Anglicanism, Methodism, and then you got the rise of America. And when you understand why America rose, you understand the religious origins of this country, it should give a guidance as to who, as a nation, it should be today. We were filming some lineage and we were in the city of Cambridge. And there in Cambridge, we were filming, uh, I think it was the episode on Thomas Cranmer or, or it was Thomas Cranmer or Hugh Latimer. And we were filming this episode in Jesus College, which is just next door to this building. And as we were walking there, we saw this place, which is called Wesley House. It wasn't on our radar to go there, but we thought, okay, we popped in, we walked to that, that door that was open, and then we knocked on the door and we're just asking a little bit about this place. So Lady comes out and she says, oh yeah, this is the Wesley House. This is where we train Methodist ministers. It's basically the seminary for Methodism in Cambridge. Doesn't get more prestigious, prestigious than that. So here we are at the seminary in Cambridge for Methodism. And Lady comes out and she tells us, oh yeah, um, this is from the Methodist Church and the Methodist Church was founded by John Wesley. 
So far, she's doing good. Amen. And John Wesley was from America. And Methodism's from America, too. Now, I know Americans like to start a lot of things. Amen. You like to claim things that you didn't, know, didn't start as well. But you can't have Methodism. Amen. John Wesley was born in England. Methodism, the roots of it, started at Oxford University with a campus ministry group there. And then it sprouted around the country. It is true, John Wesley traveled to, here to America. And it was on one of the voyages where I think he had a, a deeper conversion experience and he traveled back, but he spent the bulk of his ministry in England, ministered there. Methodism was founded in England, birthed in England, and then spread around the world. And here we are at the seminary of Methodism, and the lady on the front desk is trying to tell us, and, and, and just to, so I didn't get it wrong, I said to the lady, could you just, um, I kind of missed that point. Where did you say John Wesley's from? And where's Methodism from? America. Me and Cl I was with Clive Coutet, who's our, uh, the, the videographer at the time. We, we kind of, you know when you're looking at someone and they're trying not to laugh really hard and they're looking at you and you're really trying hard not to laugh and we're just like, all right, thank you. Leave, turn around the corners. We got to that bike in the picture or whatever it was. We just both burst out laughing. I mean, maybe I should have corrected her, but she was so convinced in her stand, and we were just trying so hard not to laugh. It's kind of like going to the Battle Creek Adventist Village. And the tour guy tells you, as you go to the Battle Creek Adventist Village, that Adventism is a German religion, and Ellen White comes from Norway. You'd be like, nah, uh, uh, uh. you need to get fired. <laughs> that would be what the equivalent is. Someone telling us that Ellen White comes from there, and Adventism comes from there completely wrong in the history and here we are in this Methodist place and they're just telling what it was Edmund Burke who said those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it knowing who we are as a people helps to shape the present it is true that our church today and we hear all this this talk in Christianity it is true that the Christian religion needs to seek for ways to be relevant amen the Christian religion needs to figure out how do you take this word and how do you make it applicable to the society in which you live? Amen? That is true. You've got to figure out. This is the Word. This is the Bible. This is the Holy Word of God. How do I make this Bible, how do I make that Bible appealing? And how do I make this Bible in ways that are maybe whatever? How do I take this Bible? How do I take the truth? How do I take the gospel and present it to my community in a way that is easiest for them to accept without compromising its principles? That's true, we have to do that as a church, but at the same time, at the same time, to be relevant without understanding our identity is irrelevant. Knowing who we are, knowing where we come from, understanding our shared history shapes our identity and guides us in the present. Because if we don't have this sense of our identity, we're constantly searching for meaning. You may have heard of the story of these two sets of twins. It's a fascinating story. In Columbia in the early 1980s, you had two sets of twins born. Two sets of identical twins born. But they both had to go to the hospital for some health reasons, and they're not quite sure how it happened, but maybe the, 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 the thing on one of the wrists or the ankles fell off, and when the nurse put it back on, she put it back on the wrong child. So the mothers come after they have the surgery or whatever they had, and take the babies home. But they took one of their babies and one of the other lady's babies. 
So both sets of twins grow up not as identical twins, but what we call fraternal twins. One set of twins grew up in Bogota, Colombia. The other set of twins grew up in, 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 the, in, the, um, in the hillsides in a very poor family. Carlos, sorry, William and Wilbur grew up in the countryside. Carlos and Jorge grew up in Bogota. How did it come to be that they figured out this story? William, who came from the family in the countryside, but should have come from the family in the city, always grew up wanting an education. He always asked his mum to send him to school. He always asked his mum to go to school. And in fact, he kind of regrets now because the last conversation he had with his mother was him arguing with her as why she didn't send him to school. But she said, we have no money, I can't send you. William grows up poor, but he should have grown up middle class at least. Personality-wise, he never fit with his family. He was more jovial, he was more funny, he was more having banter with his friends and all that stuff, and his family wasn't like that at all. He goes down to the city in Bogota to work in a butcher's shop. And one day, one day, he's working in the butcher's shop, a colleague of Jorge comes into the butcher's shop. Jorge works as an accountant. Good job. And she comes into the butcher shop to pick up some meat and she looks across and she's like, what on earth is Jorge, who works as an accountant, moon, moonlighting as a butcher for? Like he gets paid good money. And as she talked to him, he obviously doesn't respond to her because he doesn't know her. She sneaks a picture on her phone of him and a few days later she shows at work Jorge. Hey look, look at this butcher down the road. He looks at the picture and he's like, wow, that does look like me. What do you know? A few days later, he goes to the butcher shop and he sits there and talks with William. Have you got any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got a twin. Have you got any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got a twin. Let me see a picture. They both pull out their phones and show the picture of their twin. And as they look at the picture of their twins, they're like, our twins look the same. Carlos and Wilbur had the same personality, same traits. Carlos never felt like he fitted in with Jorge's family. They liked to joke around. He was very stiff and very serious and vice versa. And there's other similarities that the article goes into in much more detail. But the twins who weren't with their birth family, they said they couldn't explain it, but they never felt like they fitted. Education-wise, personality-wise, whatever else. We never fitted. Only once they kind of, all this whole story uncovered, and it's a fascinating story, New York Times has got a super long article that goes into long detail about it. These twins, that now they've kind of figured out in a sense who they are more, and there's a greater sense of identity, you could say, about these twins that are switched at birth. Who we are, we've got a shared history, we've got a shared past where our history guides who we are. History guides our identity. Our identity guides our purpose and our purpose guides our mission. We talk a lot today about mission as a church. We've got to go and preach the gospel, preach the gospel. That's the mission. That's good. But in order to accomplish that mission, we need to have a sense of purpose today. And our sense of purpose today is aided and guided by knowing who we are and where we come from. You don't just send people out for mission when they don't know who they are. God has given to us a beautiful message, amen? 
Revelation 10, our historical experience. Revelation 12, the identity of the remnant church. Revelation 14, the message God has given to us to share with the world today. God has given to us a beautiful message, and I pray that it may shape our identity, that we may understand our past, and it may give us a sense of purpose as we go out to fulfill the gospel commission in the world today. May we be faithful in sharing that message as co-laborers, with God Almighty. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we pause, as we close, may we never forget, Lord, who we are. And if we don't really know today exactly what our identity is, Lord, give us a sense of diligence to learn what our spiritual heritage and, and background and identity is, and it can shape who we are as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian today. I pray, Lord, you would bless this camp meeting, bless each person here, that we may fully know who we are, why we're here, and what our mission as a church and as individuals is. Bless us, Lord, and be with us the remainder of this Sabbath day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.